Merry Christmas. A few days early. A blessed Christmas. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the, the worldliness of it. And so much of that, even of the worldliness of it, is really a blessing. It is exciting to see people uh, excited. It's, excited to peop- it's exciting to see people uh, with a generous spirit coming forth. It's, a, it's exciting to see people being excited to spend time with friends and family and fellowship and just to love one another. Those things are exciting. The giving of gifts and receiving of gifts, it's exciting. It's a blessing. But it's so easy in the midst of all of that to miss the biggest point, the main point. And I know we hear about it, we talk about it, and somewhere in the back of our mind we all will know this. Um, But the world doesn't. So much of the world doesn't understand really what Christmas is all about. That seems hard to believe in this nation, founded on biblical principles. A nation where almost everybody has at least one Bible, maybe many, many Bibles in their house. But there are so many people in our nation now that are unchurched. They're really ignorant of the truths of the Word of God. And they just don't know. And Christmas does give us one of those times where we can have the opportunity to maybe share the hope that is in us. The joy of Christmas. The truths of Christmas. This morning, the title of my message is Emmanuel. God with us. Something we as Christians probably hear and sometimes we sing these songs about Emmanuel. But the phrase, God with us, Emmanuel, that's the interpretation according to the Scripture. We didn't have to interpret that word. The Scripture did it for us. It says that means God with us. God with us. And if you really think about and meditate on that little phrase, it can take on so much more meaning meaning than the fact that he just came to earth, which is unbelievable in itself. But the meaning of that word is beyond that. He is with us. He came to live with us. He came to experience life with us. And even when he left and ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. We are never alone. He's always with us. Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew, one of the original 12 disciples, quotes the prophet Isaiah from hundreds and hundreds of years before when he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We're going to spend a little time this morning looking at what that means for every single one of us. Every one of us. But before I get to that part, I want to ask a question and see if it can rattle your memory a little bit. You ever been around what we might have just called one of those playground shouting matches? Maybe it's two little boys getting together and it starts out kind of sweet. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad's smarter than your dad. But it seems like when we grow older, we sometimes still see those playground shouting matches played out in the lives of our friends or our family and hopefully not in us. But the shouting gets a little different. Gets a little nastier. It's like we, we feel like we're losing the argument. <clears throat> so we go on this offensive that's just plain mean. Nasty. It might go something like, your family is this. 
We know about your family. We know about your grandfather who was a drug addict. We know about your aunt who's in prison for stealing. We know about, we know about, we know about. And it goes on and on. And the amazing thing is, as soon as somebody starts attacking our family, our heritage, it escalates whatever the argument is. And it does that because it, it's like putting a knife deeper into our heart when they start pointing out these things that may be true, quite often are. They're the things that we wish didn't exist in our family tree or in our heritage, maybe in our own backgrounds. And maybe goes, who do you think you are? We know about you. Man, try growing up in a community and not knowing the Lord and doing a whole lot of stupid things publicly and then becoming a pastor in that same community. I couldn't tell you how many times I heard and still do hear at times. We remember you. And it's amazing how few of those memories of me are after I became a Christian. There are always those things before. And usually they're just said kind of in humor. (laughs) Humor. But sometimes, you know, they still cut. And we all have those things in our past or in our family, the extensions of our family. We all have these things and and they they can hurt badly. And no matter how long ago it's been, or even how recent it's been, sometimes these words get lodged in our our brain, in our mind. Sometimes they turn into lies that we believe. Who do you think you are? We know about. Fill in the blank. You think you're going to be this? You think you're going to be that? You think you're going to succeed? You think you're going to be successful? You think you're going to amount to something out of your family? Are you kidding me? It isn't going to happen. And we start to believe these things, these lies that I'm not good enough. That I'm not worthy. That I'm not acceptable. That I'm not lovable. Shame or guilt gets in there. It may not even belong to us, which it never should as a Christian. But it could be simply because of past things in our family tree, our genealogy. It's so interesting. There's such a... Such a trend towards studying and finding out about your family tree, your genealogy. Nothing wrong with that. But it's interesting when you, when you get back the reports, it tells you, you know, who your relatives were. Maybe it tells you where they lived. In a lot of our cases, it tells you when they came to America. It tells you who their children might be. But you know what's almost always missing, at least in the ones I've seen? What they did. How bad they made a mess of their life. Or the days or weeks or months that they messed up. What kind of person they really were. It doesn't tell us any of that. Probably most of us wouldn't sign up and spend $99.95 if it did. Because we don't want to know that. If there's good things in there, we want to hear it. And we want to know it. And these lies get established in our minds and all of a sudden we start believing the lies as if they're truth. And it interferes with so many things, but especially relationships. 
How many times have you heard or thought or said things like, oh boy, if you only knew me. You really don't know me. If you knew what I was, or what my family was, what we've done, there's no way you'd like me. Really, there's no way you could ever love me. There's no way. It's not possible. If you knew the real me, there's no way you'd want to have anything to do with me. And the really sad thing is, there's many of us that think like that. And oftentimes, oftentimes, that same issue that it causes in our relationship with other people becomes an issue in our relationship with God. We hear all these words about God is love and how loving and kind and compassionate and merciful He is. And we might even believe it, but it's not for me because of this. He couldn't love me. I'm not deserving of His mercy. It says His grace is sufficient, but I think it meant for everybody else, but not me. And so often we live in that kind of bondage. My family came from the wrong side of the tracks. We grew up poor and had nothing. My dad was a good man, but he spent a number of years in prison that most people wouldn't know about. This is generic, not my dad, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> wanted to make that clear, Mom. <laughs> There's always stuff. There's always stuff. Humanity has been broken since sin entered the world. In many ways, all of us have been or are broken. And somehow we believe the lies that because of that brokenness, we're disqualified from the mercy and the grace and the love of God. That somehow or other, we're not good enough, we can't be redeemed. That somehow there's this abundant life I hear talked about, but it's not going to ever happen in my life. And those are lies from the pit of hell. And you might be thinking, how in the world is this a Christmas message? Well, I'm going to read some scriptures that you probably never had read at a Christmas message, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's a part of scripture that when you do read it, if you've read it, you just go through and say, who are all these people? I recognize a few names. A lot of them I don't even know who they are, and I certainly can't even pronounce them all. And if I think about it, it's like, you know what? We've, the Old Testament, there's been this gap where God hasn't spoken. Jesus has come to earth. Matthew is going to be page one of the New Testament, and it starts out like this. There's got to be a more exciting way to start a great story than rattling off 42 names or more that mean nothing. So I want to encourage you, please stay awake for the next few moments because I'm going to read these verses. And I probably will mispronounce many of the names. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And to Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob. And to Jacob, Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashalon, and to Nashon, Salmon, 
until Solomon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her whom had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat, Joram, and to Joram, Uzziah, and to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham was born Ahaz, and to Ahaz, Hezekiah. Still with me? And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh, Amon, and to Amon, Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and, to, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abahud, and to Abahud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. A lot of names. Genealogies. A genealogy, when we read through that, if we manage to get through it, it doesn't mean much, other than, well, there's a lot of relatives. We need to remember a couple things. First of all, Matthew, one of the original 12, is writing this letter, this gospel, primarily to a Jewish audience. And when a Jewish audience sees or hears a genealogy, it means a whole lot more than it might mean to us. And when he is writing the entire gospel of his book, this Matthew that we're talking about, his primary theme is to present Jesus as the Savior and King, as the Messiah to a Jewish audience. And to present that to a Jewish audience so they would really get it and it would impact it, he started with the genealogy. The genealogies of the Jews were very important to the Jews. As a matter of fact, the, the legitimate genealogies were all recorded and were kept by the priests at the temple up until the time Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and most of it was lost. But besides those official ones, there were the genealogies that the families had. Kind of like your family tree and my family tree. And they would share them orally and tell the stories of their family members, of their relatives. And this genealogy to the Jews, one of the reasons it was so important, and they're very practical reasons, one, it proved that they were in fact Jewish by their genealogy. And because they are Jewish, the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are for them. It was also important in an even more practical way, if you recall the story, when they were given land, they were given the land to the 12 tribes and the tribes of Israel. And your genealogy would show and prove that you were of one of those tribes and you had a right to land in that particular territory. Very practical. And it also showed you and gave you the privilege of knowing some of your ancestors 
the famous ones, the ones that did really cool things in the history of the Jewish people. It's interesting. They had the legal ones that were kept at the temple and the, and the Jewish leaders, the, the priests. But the family ones would be a lot like some of ours would be if we would draw them out. They got a little bit selective of who they told stories about in their family genealogy. I mean, can you imagine, like, maybe we have done, some of us, the children crawl up in Grandpa's lap and Grandpa starts telling them about their family tree. Your great-grandfather was this. Your great-great-grandfather was this. Your uncle was this. You have an uncle that did this. You can imagine if, if you got, you're a Jewish grandfather and you got your little grandson or granddaughter sitting on your lap, you would certainly tell them about their relative who fought alongside a King David battling the enemies. You might leave out the story about that relative who became king and he was an evil king, an idolatrous king, and he led the whole nation into sin. You'd leave him out a little bit. Selective. You know, kind of like us. Some of us have families that we get together. We, we got a few people that we don't want to talk about. You know, that one weird uncle. Or that one who did this or that. We just kind of like slide right past that. Because, why would we do that? Because in some weird way in our mind it might reflect on me. On who I am. Because of my family tree. So they filtered it down just like we would do. And because they filtered it down, that's one of the things that makes the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 so interesting. Because Matthew did not clean up this family tree. And I think he did it with great intention. We're going to just look at a few of the names in there, very few, very briefly, to make this point that Jesus himself declared. His words were a little different than mine, but mine are this. Jesus came for broken people. He came for broken people. If we look at the lineage, there is a whole bunch of broken people listed in these names of the Messiah. They didn't leave any of them out. As a matter of fact, they brought some things in that they could have easily left out. When we look at some of those names, Abraham. If we know anything about Abraham, we know he was the father of the faith, the father of the Jewish nation. Wow, Abraham. We're going to talk about Abraham. We're just going to leave out a few details like, you know, he had a child promised to him and he got a little impatient or either didn't believe God, so he got a concubine, had sex with her, had a baby, and they named him Ishmael. How many of you know that's been a problem even today? Today, that would be the Jewish na- the, 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 the nations of the, uh, surrounding Israel, the Arab nations. That would have been nice if maybe Abraham wouldn't have done that. Jacob. Jacob deceived his father and stole the birthright of his brother. And if you want to read about a family that suffers a lot of messed up stuff, do a study on the family of Jacob, one of the fathers of the faith. Jacob. And from there it can get worse. There's this woman mentioned in there that had twins. Tamar. Tamar had twins, and she's listed in the lineage of Christ, the genealogies of Christ. But what it doesn't say here, but it says back earlier in the Scripture is, Tamar's husband died. 
So the father-in-law asked one of his sons to go and continue on the family line with her, being, but he didn't do it. I won't go into details, but there are details. And he said, just wait till my youngest son grows up. You can marry him and keep the family line going. It didn't happen. So she had a plan of her own. Tamar had a plan. She heard where her father was traveling, dressed up like a prostitute on the side of the road, had sex with her father-in-law, and delivered two twins. Oh, I'd just as soon leave that out of my family tree. Ruth, King David's great-grandmother, an amazing lady. But she was also a Moabite. And the Moabite were a nation of people that were cursed by Moses. So we've got this Moabitess into the family tree. And after Ruth, there's Rahab. Rahab is in the lineage of the Messiah. Rahab was a Canaanite, and we all know that they hated the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Canaanites. Oh yeah, and she was a prostitute. But she's in the lineage of Jesus. His family tree. Then when he comes to King David, boy, everybody, King David, I want him in my family tree. The Messiah is going to come from the lineage of King David. Most of us know the story of King David. He had an adulterous affair, got her pregnant, had her husband killed, married her, as a consequence lost his son. But he's a God, man after God's own heart. And, and, and Matthew could have just let all that slide, but you notice when I read the genealogies, did you notice what it said there? When it got to King David and talks about his son Solomon, it says, you know, Solomon, born from that woman, who was the husband of Uriah. What a messed up family tree Jesus has. And if you wanted to get into some of the less ones, you know, Bathsheba. Why did he even mention Bathsheba? It's beyond me, but he did. And I think there's a really good reason. Whatever Bathsheba was involved with with King David, his grace superseded the sin. And she's in the lineage of Jesus. And if we would spend time, which we're not going to do, going through many of those other names that are listed, many of them were kings of Judah or kings of Israel. Some of them were amazing kings and some of them were absolutely horrible, evil kings. Leading the nation of Israel into idolatry, into war. and It was ugly. But they're all in there. Why in the world did Matthew do this? Why did he leave all of those things in the family tree? I think for us, we need to grab hold of the reality that God's grace, and I think he wanted to demonstrate it even that to us through this family tree, that God's grace shows that forgiveness is possible. It shows us that redemption is available to everybody no matter what. It shows us that God uses broken people. All of us that seem like we're disqualified for whatever reason think we're too broken. Most, most of us aren't even close to being as broken as many of these people were. 
because of sin. Where sin is strong, grace is even stronger. The grace of God. Jesus came as a baby and entered into this world that was broken. But He never participated in the brokenness. He came to heal the brokenness. He came to redeem. He came to forgive. He came to restore a relationship with the Father. Jesus was never ever overcome by the brokenness. His goal, His plan, His mission was to heal it. And yet we work so hard to hide our brokenness. We work so hard at it. If we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things become new. We are children of God, the Creator of the universe. We belong to Him. We are His. And yet we hide our brokenness. Somehow we think we're not good enough. We walk around, yet we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but I walk around in guilt and shame, condemnation. We come up with these crazy ideas that somehow we're disqualified. It doesn't matter what your family was. It doesn't matter what's in your family tree. It doesn't matter what your genealogy was. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. None of that matters to God. It shouldn't matter to us. We try to hide our insecurities. We try to hide our fears. We're afraid that someone might find out. Someone might discover this and therefore not want anything to do with us. Jesus will not, has not, has never disqualified us for being broken. None of us. No one is disqualified because we're messed up and broken. Because we had a messed up family or a broken family. It does not matter. He doesn't disqualify ever. We live our lives in lies that we should not be living our lives in as Christians. We should not be living our lives believing that we're not good enough, that we're not lovable, that we're still living in guilt and shame and condemnation for so many things from our past. And most of us have plenty of those things. I've got a whole bunch of them. But they've been redeemed by Jesus, the baby in a manger. And I believe that's some of the things that, that are available to us to learn when we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Nothing was hidden. It was all up front for everyone to see. There's murderers in there. There's prostitutes in there. There's incest in there. There's idolatry galore in there. And Jesus says, that's okay. Just come to me. Turn to me. I'm going to read a couple scriptures as I get ready to close. First one is in Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew's writing these words and he says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus just looked at Matthew and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And then in verse 10 it says, while Jesus was having 
dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Boy, about there, most of us would have started making excuses for Jesus because we're kind of ashamed that we're even there because they're tax collectors and sinners and nobody hangs out with those if you're a good Jew. But Jesus answers because he overheard him. And he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. You're not disqualified. I'm not disqualified. We never were. He still offered us the gift of salvation provided through a baby in a manger. In Romans 5, starting at verse 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were a mess, while we were broken, He still died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? He came for sinners. He came for the broken. He came for us. Paul reiterates this in reference to himself in 1 Timothy. He writes these words, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He wasn't ignorant of what he was doing was bad. But he didn't understand what he was doing and how bad it really was. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is just admitting, I'm, I was so broken. He declares himself to be the worst of all sinners. But God's grace was sufficient. His love was sufficient. He gave faith in Jesus Christ. And he was restored and used mightily by God. And that is one of the reasons that God saves all of us that accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. One, to restore relationship with Him. But two, that we can help others to discover the same truth. That we don't need to live in this brokenness under condemnation, guilt, shame, and whatever else. We have a story to tell. You have a story to tell. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have a testimony. You are a witness of the miracle that God can accomplish in one who is broken. Broken. I just had a thought I can't share. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, I maybe can, but... My own life is an example of brokenness. I'll never ever forget. 
I hope this isn't going to go out on live TV. <laughs> My mom is here as a witness. I went out to the farm to tell them that I was going to become a pastor at Victory Christian Church. And she looked at me and said, Huh? What seminary are you going to go to? I'm not. Oh. Well, we better tell your dad. <laughs> and I'm going, Oh boy. So dad's doing chores. He's walking from the, one of the farrowing barns up to the house. And my mom's going to help me out. Lennon, come over here. He just keeps walking. <laughs> Lennon, come over here. What? <laughs> Mike's got something to tell you. Come over here. <clears throat> what? Now he's at the door ready to go in the house. <laughs> Remember this, mother? Mom... <laughs> Mom hollers, Mike's going to be the pastor at Victory Church. Like hell he is. <laughs> and in the house he went. I was broken and he knew it. He knew it. When you look at the lineage and genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, that baby came from a lineage of broken people. No matter how broken you think your life is or was or what your family history is, it doesn't matter. You're not disqualified. He died for you. He offers you the gift of salvation. He wants us all to become part of His family, become His children, and receive the blessings and promises of God. That's why the baby came to a manger. He came to die for my sin. He came to die for your sins. To reclaim us. To help us. And that's why we exist as a church. To help people discover who this Jesus is as a personal Lord and Savior so that they're able to experience the abundant life that's available to all through Jesus. That's why He died. And as Christians, that's what we should be living in and walking in. There's still problems. There's still things. There's still sin. There's still issues. We struggle as Christians. But we're not broken. And He loves us. And He cares for us. Whatever your story is, Emmanuel, God with us, changes the trajectory of that story. It'll never be the same. Never. God with us. He came to live amongst us. To identify with us. To understand us and let us understand Him. His grace is way stronger than any sin. And sin never ever gets the final say in the life of a Christian. Ever. Ever. So because of that little baby born in a manger, the grace of God gets the final say. And our prayer is that we all accept the gift of grace and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. Receive the gift of salvation offered through Jesus. Acknowledge that we are sinners and need a Savior and we could never clean ourselves up good enough. He came anyway. In our brokenness, He came and rescued us. In our sin, He came and rescued us. If we accept the gift. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I, I thank You so much for rescuing us broken people. God, that in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, Your grace drew us by Your Holy Spirit. And by grace, we responded 
to receive the gift of Jesus, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness made available through the blood of Christ, His death, His burial, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season that there would be no one here in this room that would go through this time without making sure they've accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray you would give us opportunities to demonstrate that new life that we have in Christ. Then in the midst of the things of the world, we can walk in peace and hope and joy and love because Jesus lives in us. He is still with us. I pray, Lord, that we would have opportunities that you would give us the grace to respond in obedience to each opportunity and extend your grace to any who need to hear the truth of that baby in a manger. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.